Our scripture this morning comes from Genesis chapter 18. It's a great story. It goes like this. The Lord appeared to Abraham by the oaks of Mamre as he sat at the entrance of his tent in the heat of the day. He looked up and saw three men standing near him. When he saw them, he ran from the tent entrance to meet them and bowed down to the ground. He said, my Lord, if I find favor with you, do not pass by your servant. Let a little water be brought and wash your feet and rest yourselves under the tree. Let me bring a little bread that you may refresh yourselves. And after that, you may pass on. Since you've come, come to your servant. So they said, do as you have said. And Abraham hastened in the tent to Sarah and said, make ready quickly three measures of choice flour. Knead it and make cakes. Abraham ran to the herd and took a calf tender and good and gave it to the servant who hastened to prepare it. Then he took curds and milk and the calf that he had prepared and set it before them and he stood by them under the tree while they ate. They said to him, where is your wife Sarah? And he said, there in the tent. Then one said, I will surely return to you in due season and your wife Sarah shall have a son. And Sarah was listening at the entrance of the tent behind him. Now Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced, and aged, and it had ceased to be with Sarah after the manner of women. So Sarah laughed to herself, saying, After I have grown old and my husband is old, shall I have pleasure? The Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh and say, Shall I indeed bear a child now that I am old? Is anything too wonderful for the Lord? At the set time, I will return to you in due season, and Sarah shall have a son. But Sarah denied, saying, I, I didn't laugh, for she was afraid. And he said, oh, yes, you did laugh. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. The Lord appeared to Abraham by the oaks of Mamre as he sat at the entrance of his tent in the heat of the day. What a lovely opening line. I know favorite verses in the Bible are supposed to be like, thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. But that verse, the Lord appeared to Abraham by the oaks of Mamre as he sat at the entrance of his tent in the heat of the day. You can see him, can't you? Sitting against a tree, perhaps. He is 99 years old. And you can see each year in the lines of his face. His hair is wiry and his skin, dark olive, cracked from the unforgiving desert sun. The oaks of Mamre are short trees with long horizontal branches that provide shade that is the difference between life and death. It is after lunch and the sun is at its hottest. Sarah walks into the tent hunched over, putting one foot in front of, an, in front of the other with great effort and care and Abraham sits with all 100 of his years at the entrance of his tent. We're introduced to Abraham in Genesis 12, and he's already 75 years old when we first meet him. Sarah is 65. They probably have 50 years of marriage between them already. They know each other's habits. And as the story goes, the Lord comes to Abraham, Abram, as he's known back then, and tells him, Leave your land and your relatives and all of your comfort and everything that you know and go to a land that I will show you. It's a big ask 
coming from a God that Abraham doesn't know that well. But there's a promise with it, and you listen when God speaks, and so Abram goes because God says, I'll make you a great nation, and I'll bless you and make your name great, so you shall be a blessing, and I'll bless those who bless you and curse those who curse you, and in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. And that's a promise worth taking a chance on, and so they take a chance and move to a new place. They take a chance that perhaps this God can bless. It's worth the risk. Maybe this God can make them a people, and so they take a chance on moving to a new town, a new city to make new friends, look for a new job. And if you've ever packed up and left town and moved to a new place, you know something of the excitement and fear that comes with it. I've moved several times, twice out of real conviction. The other time simply because it seemed like the logical thing to do, but twice out of conviction. For Abraham and Sarah, this is a move out of conviction. It doesn't make all that much sense, but they just have a feeling And God's made a promise, and so they take a risk. But they're 75 and 65 already, and they're rich. They have plenty. But the promise to extend that heritage beyond themselves, that's a promise they can't fulfill on their own. So they take God up on his offer, and they set out, not knowing how God will be faithful, but trusting that he will be. Not knowing where they're headed, but in search of, of a life of meaning and purpose and faithfulness, a life that we all move to a different city to pursue. And immediately they find themselves away from family and in the midst of a famine. There's no food and they have no family to turn to and they're in a strange place. They ran out of, they ran out of money, they ran out of the livestock, they, they're in trouble. And so they end up going down to Egypt and Abraham lies and says that Sarah is his sister so that Pharaoh won't kill him in order to get to Sarah. And it's the wrong decision. But somehow, you can read that story a different time, somehow they leave Egypt with more than they came into it with. They leave with even more wealth. God continues to bless them abundantly with wealth. And they go back up north to Canaan to settle in a land and Abraham and Lot, his, his nephew, look out over this plain and they... Abraham ends up with more land than the eye can see. But you know how sometimes you can have a hundred things going right in your life, but one thing going wrong and that thing makes all the difference? And that no matter how much all of the other stuff is going right, that one thing ruins it all? You try to be thankful for all the good stuff, but most days... When you're really honest and that friend asks you just the right question at just the wrong time, you break down and lose it. Sarah loses it because she has no kids. And I don't know how hard it is for her not to have any children. But it's hard. It's everything. And adding to the herds does nothing for her. She is numb to the increasing livestock. In fact, it adds to the pain. With every material success, she wonders why she was never given any children to pass these blessings along to. God is the one who blesses. Clearly, God can bless because he keeps giving us more. Clearly, the problem is with me. In chapter 15, God continues to be redundant. He says to Abraham, don't fear, your reward shall be very great. And Abraham says, Lord God, What will you keep giving me since I am childless 
and the heir of my house is Eleazar of Damascus. And no offense to him, but I don't really know him. Since you've given me no offspring, one born in my house will be my heir. And God responds, look at the stars, Abraham. Count them. So shall your descendants be. And so Abraham goes back into the tent and tells Sarah, look at the stars, Sarah. God says that's what our descendants will be like. And on some days she believes it, and on other days she knows she is a fool to hold out any hope. She prays about it. Maybe God wants to provide in a different way. Sometimes God answers our prayers in different ways, she thinks, so maybe we need to be more flexible. So she decides that Abraham should try and have a child with her maid, Hagar. She tries to be faithful by being, you know, I don't want to be the stumbling block here, let's get creative. And so Hagar and Abram sleep together, and to Sarah's horror and shame, Hagar becomes pregnant, and her heart sinks, because Hagar's pregnancy is proof of a suspicion that Sarah has carried with her her entire life. It's her fault. She is the reason that for the last 60 years, Abram has had no children, no kids to call his own. There's something wrong with her. Her body doesn't work. She isn't good enough. She doesn't work. And it is a grief that drowns out everything else. Hagar and the rest of the house also seem to reach this conclusion. And Sarah soon cannot handle her shame. And so she sends Hagar away, hoping that her shame and hurt will leave with her. But they don't, of course. Because we cannot scapegoat our shame and hurt God comes to Hagar's aid in the desert and brings Hagar back to Abraham's family. And for the next 13 years, Hagar raises Ishmael in the household of Abraham and Sarah watches. And time heals the pain a bit, but the loss of a child never born does not go away. 13 years passed. There are no more epiphanies worth recording, apparently. No mention of descendants or nations. God's answer seems to have come. In Hagar's son, Ishmael, he will carry on the family legacy. Things have turned out fine. they're, they're, They're well off. There's plenty to be thankful for. But things certainly didn't go as Abraham and Sarah expected it might. But it's okay. Then, when Ishmael is 13 and Abram is on the edge of an even hundred... God finally comes to Abram again and makes a covenant with him. He gives him the sign of circumcision, changes his name to Abraham, and God says, your wife, Sarai, you should call her Sarah, and I will bless her, and she will be the mother of nations. Kings of peoples will come from her. Then the text tells us, quote, Abraham fell on his face and laughed. And he says this, he says, oh, that Ishmael might live before you. Tears from laughter are still running down his face. It's fine, God. Sarah couldn't conceive. Just continue to watch over Ishmael. He falls on his face, laughing from the idea of his 90-year-old wife having a child. And God responds, no, but Sarah, your wife will bear you a son, and you shall name him He laughs. Itzhak, he laughs. Isaac, you will name him 
he laughs. So Abraham is sitting at the entrance of his tent in the heat of the day when three men step into the shade of his oak tree and he jumps up as fast as his recently circumcised 99-year-old self will allow. And he hobbles towards the strangers and welcomes them with grace and reverence and he says, let me get a little water, a little bread, sit down. And then his and, and, and this is the hunched Sarah that hurries to prepare the biscuits. She has resigned herself to the idea that she will not have children. She's 90. The text tells us that she no longer experiences the cycle of women, and I'm guessing it's been a few decades. And Abraham isn't exactly a young buck himself. But Abraham and Sarah show great hospitality to these strangers. And some commentaries speculate that these three men are angels or that they are the Father and Son and the Holy Spirit or maybe Jesus with two angels at his side. It seems more likely to me that they are simply human beings, people with a word and that it is only in hindsight that Abraham is able to say, the Lord appeared to me at the Oaks of Mamre. At first, it is just three strangers. That's usually how God works. Just three strangers who are in need of a cool place to rest their head. While they're eating, they ask Abraham about Sarah. And they say that next year at this time, there will be a baby. And Abraham about falls off his stool and Sarah overhears it and chokes on her tea. She gazes down at her body and laughs at the idea of it producing anything other than creaks and pain. What you do with this story turns on whether Sarah is in the right to laugh or not. Some think that it's a sign of weakness or disbelief that she, that she shouldn't have laughed. And to those writers, I say, of course she didn't believe. She's 90 years old. She had been waiting for 75 years to have a kid. 75 years praying for a child every morning, waiting every month to see if maybe this month. And then 25 years being promised that something would happen, and now 13 years living with resentment and finally resigning to the fact that life sometimes doesn't turn out the way we think it should. At this point, laughing is the best of all possible responses to these men coming and once more promising a child, dangling this carrot in front of her face because now Sarah is 90 and Abraham is 99 and there ain't much fruit in those loins anymore. She doesn't send the visitors off at once. She doesn't stomp her foot. She laughs to herself and maybe towards God. And sometimes faith takes on the form of laughter. When the visitors call her out on it, she says, oh, no, 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 no. I, I wasn't laughing. I mean, sorry. I, no, I'm not laughing at you. It's just, I've been, I've been praying a long time for this and I'm 90 now. And I'm, I'm sorry, I'm not, I'm not laughing. It's just... It's just not going to happen. Or is it? And the visitors respond, and I imagine they have a smirk on their face as well, and they say, Lo tzaka, which means, no, but you did. I didn't laugh. No, but you did laugh. He doesn't chide Sarah for it. He winks, I think. You did laugh, but I get it. In the book of 
Hebrews, Abraham and Sarah are both mentioned as examples of great faith. Abraham falling on his face, laughing, but getting back up, moving forward. Sarah laughing at the entrance of the tent. And somehow in that laughter, believing. Frederick Buechner writes, they are laughing at the idea of a baby being born in the geriatric ward and Medicare's picking up the tab. They are laughing because the angel not only seems to believe it, but seems to expect them to believe it too. They're laughing because with part of themselves, they do believe it. They are laughing because with another part of themselves, they know it would take a fool to believe it. They're laughing because laughing is better than crying and maybe not even all that different. End quote. God is in the business of laughter. Laughing is what the gospel is all about. Think about the gospel in photos of Zacchaeus, the greedy little scum of a tax collector standing next to Jesus, beaming freely while Jesus stands next to him, arm around his shoulder, Jesus' head two feet above Zacchaeus, cropped off by the photo. Or the scene of Lazarus' tomb where Jesus, through his own tears, shouts, Lazarus, come out. And even Jesus' tears are turned from tears of grief to tears of laughter and joy and hysteria. The gospel knows the pain of our years, the pain that sits with us at the entrance of our tent in the heat of the day. The pain of Sarah waiting patiently and impatiently, the pain of career ambitions shot, of a life going in every direction except the direction you thought it would. We cry from fear and sorrow and desperation, and we cry from delight and beauty and joy, and the gospel is all of them held before a God that in Christ Jesus weeps with sorrow and weeps with a laughing delight over all creation. I called my grandma this week because calling your grandma is always a good idea and I should do it more. And because I wanted her help with this sermon, my grandma's 94 and I thought, who could relate to Sarah? I can try, but my grandma can relate more. And so I told her what story I was preaching on, that I was preaching on the story of Abraham and Sarah, and Sarah having a baby in her 90s, and I asked her what she thought about that. And she laughed. And hearing my grandma laugh about this story uh, put it into perspective for me, the absurdity of my grandma at 94 having a child. <laughs> and I think it put it into perspective for her too. I don't think she had ever really thought about herself in that situation. And so we talked for a while about the ridiculousness of this story. She said, poor Sarah. <laughs> she's been sitting around this entire time and now when she's 90, oh. We talked for about 20 minutes about why God would wait so long and what Hagar must have thought. and What did Ishmael think? And was it fair for Sarah to have to wait so long? And no, it wasn't fair. And I called my grandma because I know that at 94, she has plenty of reason to doubt that God is as good as they say he is. But she also has enough reason to believe that maybe nothing is too wonderful for the Lord. The gospel knows our deep pains and disappointments. And why God waits so long for Sarah to, or 
why God waits so long to provide a job or to reconcile a father and a daughter or to stop violence, I won't pretend to know. In life, there is pain and there is laughter, and I believe there is more of the latter than the former. Beekner again. Is it possible, I wonder, to say that it is only when you hear the gospel as a wild and marvelous joke that you really hear it at all? Heard as anything else, the gospel is the church's thing or the preacher's thing or the lecturer's thing. Heard as a joke, high and unbidden, ringing with laughter, it can only be God's thing. Let's pray. God, we hold before you all of our disappointments and all of the misdirection, all of the ways that our life has not turned out to be the life that we thought maybe it should be or could be or would be. All of that pain and brokenness that sits with us at the entrance of a tent in the heat of the day. And we pray that by your Holy Spirit, you would turn sorrow into laughter. I pray that we would be a community that sees hurt and sees pain and holds it and offers hope and joy and maybe even comedy. God, I pray that this week we would see how laughter outnumbers sorrow. And I pray that we would be a people who are a part of bringing that laughter to a world. Help us to tell some jokes this week. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, amen.